I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Job, the book of Job. We'll be looking and starting in chapter 4 in just a few moments. And uh, we've been in this series entitled Out of Darkness the last few weeks. And uh, we've been looking at various parts of the life of Job in the book of Job. And uh, really, hopefully, uh, it's been a benefit for you as it has been for me as I've studied Job again and, and fresh. Uh, I pray that uh, God would be using his word each week in all of our lives. But we've looked at uh, suffering in the world. We've looked at choosing faith in the midst of suffering. And we looked at last week this uh, understanding that feelings are real in Job chapter 3, seeing all that Job was enduring and that Job was going through. And then this morning we're going to be looking at bad counsel that Job is going to receive from some of his friends and counselors in his life. Uh, One of the really special things about the series so far is we've had opportunity to hear from a number of different individuals within our church family uh, here at Maranatha and their stories and how God has worked in their lives and how God has shown up in their lives in spite of some very difficult circumstances and troubles that have come into their lives. And so that's been a blessing Uh, and we've wanted to hear from different folks in our church Uh, Just so that we as a church not only can be further praying for uh, each other, but also to be challenged, encouraged, inspired by the reality that God is working. Um, All of that, the things that we're looking at in the life of Job and all of the trials and hardships that Job endured are, are real. Job's reactions and feelings to all that he was going through and enduring were real. And we felt it would be very beneficial to hear from real people about real situations and things that are happening in their lives and see how our very real God uh, shows his true faithfulness to them. And so I want to invite uh, my brother here, Jim Creed, to come up. He's going to share a little bit of his story this morning with you all. I had opportunity to hear Jim last week in the auditorium, and we wanted you guys to hear what God's been doing in Jim's life. So take a listen. Good morning. Oh, come on, you can do better than that. I got a cold. Good morning. There we go. You know, in Psalm 118, 24, it says, this is a day that the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. And I want you to know that you are looking at a man who is rejoicing and glad to be here today. I am thrilled. Just one for the opportunity that Bruce has given me to share part of my story. If I shared the entire story, it would be a sermon series. But anyways, see, I am truly happy because I have come to learn that each day is a gift. And that's why they call it the present. Aren't you excited when you get a present? So you should be excited every day. I know I'm excited. Now, you might ask, how did this guy learn this truth that each day is a gift? You're in luck. I'm going to share it with you. I want you to know that 26 years and 25 pounds ago, I was 44 years old. I had my first heart attack and my first open heart surgery. That is not remarkable at all. Happens all the time. People have heart attacks and surgery. But what is remarkable that what has happened over the next 26 years. Over the past 26 years, I've had 10 more heart attacks. I had a stroke. I had another open heart surgery. I had three aneurysms. I had emergency heart surgery to fix the aneurysm 
that was ready to break. So I am happy to be here today. And I've had more heart procedures than you could ever count. So again, each day is a gift, and I realize that. And I hope that by the time we're done, that you realize that I know my time is short. You don't. So let's treat each day like it's a gift. You know, I've had so many procedures that my doctors don't even look at me as a patient. Seriously. They think I'm an annuity. A trip to Aruba. Or I'm the payment on that new BMW they want. So anyways, let me tell you about my last one. My last heart attack was in August of 2018. Um, I had had an upset stomach all week. No big deal. It was no cardiac symptoms or anything like that. But my wife said, you know, why don't you call the cardiologist just to be sure that it's not cardio? So what we did, Friday morning got up, she told me that, I called down to the, and talked to the PA, and he said, you know, just to be sure, why don't you go down to the hospital, have them run blood and an EKG just to rule out because of, because of my rather sordid past. So the first miracle was I went to the hospital because I haven't been known to be the most compliant patient in the world. So I go down to Akron General, I mean, you know, SUMA, and they take blood and do an EKG. My blood was normal, but the EKG was irregular. And because of my history, they kept me to observe, to see what was going on. And wouldn't you know, three hours after they hooked me up to all the whistles and bells to monitor me, I had a heart attack. I mean, isn't that just like God? I mean, he put me there. Had we stayed at home, had I stayed at home, it would not have been, the outcome would have been completely different. But the one thing that I remember so clearly on that particular heart attack is that as they were rolling me into the cath lab, it was so clear that it was like a voice said, one of these times, this isn't going to work. Like Job in chapter 3 when he says, that what, that I have befeared most has fallen upon me. I rolled in and I just, you know, one of these times, this isn't going to work. And it didn't. You're awake during a calf procedure and I could tell something was wrong, just the tone in the room. They went in and came right back out. They came back to the room and, and told us that it was inoperable. Um, that to open the blockage would make it worse. Actually, a, a fear of death had they opened the blockage in that. My plumbing in my heart is so bad. So as I stand here today in front of you, I have five 100% blockages. My Widowmaker is 80% blocked. My anterior is 90% blocked. And for good measure, I have two aneurysms. My heart doesn't beat. It ticks. We really did not expect to see Christmas of 2018. Uh, it's just no way. They just wait. You know, there's nothing they can do. We made plans, uh, you know, 
to get everything ready because December of 2018 just was a long way away. And here we are 18 months later. The doctors counted me out, but God. But God had other plans. In John 9, it says, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. See, our plans, our plans, my wife and I had planned to go to the clinic. We put it out nationally to who can fix this problem. And some said, hey, we, we specialize in tough cases. We put everything out. And when it came back after countless tests, nobody would touch my heart. We were shaken, to say the least. Because, you know, when they, when they tell you that there's nothing they can do, it affects you. But God. You know, had God answered our prayer and done what we wanted, everyone would have said, isn't the clinic fantastic? Aren't those doctors amazing? This way, God gets all the glory. James 5.16 says, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous person is powerful. And I want to tell you, the reason I stand here today is because of the prayers, the support, the, the visits, the calls, and this body of Christ praying for me. We have had so many doctors throw up their hands and say, I can't explain why you're still here. We can, but God. But God had other plans. I have lived for the last 26 years on Philippians 4, 4 through 6, which says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Let your gentleness, let your happiness be evident to all, for the Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, through prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, make your request be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. I have that peace. My wife has that peace. Do you? The highway of life is littered with speed bumps, potholes, detours, delays, and it's painful. But when you know your destination, he is going to give you his grace to get you through, no matter what the situation. And you can look at it. That, is it tough? Yes, it is. I'd be lying if I said it's not tough going through these valleys. But his grace is there for you. And my prayer is for all of you that you would humble yourself and pray and ask Jesus to help you through these valleys, give you his peace. Because I'm nothing special, but my God is. Thank you so much for the time. Appreciate it. Uh, so good to be able to hear how God is at work. 
And to those of you that know Jim or have spent any time with Jim, you know it's not very long that you're with him before he is sharing with someone the gospel and sharing about who Jesus is and praying for people and wanting to make Christ known. And so, so good to hear how God has worked in his life. I knew you'd be encouraged by that. And I don't know what it is you may be going through today. Um, All of us have different stories that we could share and that we could tell about how God is working in our lives and the things that God has brought us through. Um, And that's the same in our series that we've been looking at with this man, Job. Um, We've been in Job for the last three weeks. This is now week four, and I want to get us caught up to speed as we look at Job in Job chapter four uh, to start off with this morning. Job was a man that feared God. Uh, You know, there's a lot of of perspectives out there today that if you fear God, if you love God, if you live rightly before God, all of your wildest dreams will come true. (laughs) There's this thinking that as long as you're honoring God, nothing bad, nothing evil, nothing negative will come into your life. And that just isn't what the Bible says. Uh, That's not true according to what God's word says. On the contrary, Jesus said that in the world, you will have tribulation, you will have trials, you will have hardships, you will have difficulties. But our encouragement as a believer in Christ today is not that there will never be difficulties, there will never be sorrow, there will never be troubles, there will never be hardships. The encouragement is from Christ where Christ said, in the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, rejoice, I have overcome the world. Uh, The recognition that you and I have as believers is that as bad, as awful as this world gets, as hard as the trials of this life get, we serve someone, Jesus Christ, who is far greater and who has given us victory uh, through him. And so that's our encouragement. Job was a man that feared God and hated evil, the Bible tells us. Job was a man that in the eyes of God was the most upright man Uh, On the earth, God would say of Job, there's no one like him in all of the earth. That's absolutely remarkable to consider about Job. Uh, I want us to understand this. Uh, If you've never read through Job, or maybe you've read through it, but you've never looked at the book of Job and did a study on all that was true of Job's life that set him apart in the eyes of God, I would encourage you to do that. As you listen to the testimony of his friends and you listen to Job talk about his life previously, you will be able to see and gather and read all that was true of Job's life that would cause Job to be put in a standing before God as a holy, as a blameless and upright man, as one that there was no one like him on all the earth that set him apart in God's eyes. But what we find happens in the book of Job, in Job's chapter 1 and 2, is that God introduces Job by name, brings him up by name to the devil, to Satan himself. God says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There's no one like him in all the earth. He fears God and hates evil. And the devil will respond to God and say, does Job fear God for no reason? You've put a hedge around him. You've blessed the work of his hands. Everything he does, you've caused to prosper. Of course he fears you. Of course he fears God and hates evil. Look at what you've done for him. And Satan asked God to stretch forth his hand and to touch Job's life. 
And he says that Job will curse you to your face. And what we read in chapter 1 and chapter 2 is the full-fledged attack of the devil himself on Job, desirous to see Job curse God and die. I made mention last week in the auditorium, and I think it's important for us to understand, our adversary, the devil, wants to completely destroy us as followers of Jesus Christ. When God would ask Satan, have you considered my servant Job, Satan knew all about Job. Satan didn't have to tell God, hold on, let me go find out about it and I'll get back to you. He says, have you considered my servant Job? And Satan says, yeah, I know who Job is. You blessed everything that he does. You've put a hedge around him all the way around him. I can't get to him. I can't touch him. Sure, he blesses you. Sure, he honors you. Look at what you've done for him. Satan knew all about Job. And he wanted to destroy Job. But he hasn't been able to touch Job because of God's hand of protection on Job's life and Job's family and Job's possessions. And then God says, have at it. Only touch not his person. Only don't touch him. But anything he has, it's in your hands. And so what we read is, that the full-fledged attack of Satan came into Job's life, and we read some very tragic things in Job chapter 1. Tragic things, one after the next, after the next, after the next, that came into Job's life. It was a full-scale attack by Satan on Job. And then in chapter 2, we read that Job would not curse God and die, as Satan said, and Satan comes back to the Lord, and he says, let me touch his body, let me, let me, Strike him with illness and he'll curse you to your face. And so God gives Job per, or Satan permission. He says, only do not kill him. Keep him alive. And Satan goes out and just from the, the, the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, he touches Job's body with painful boils all over his body. His health is destroyed. His wife's encouragement to Job is curse God and die. His children have been taken from him in a tragic accident. His servants have fallen. All of his possessions and wealth seems to have dried up and be taken from him, and there's nothing left. And Job, sitting in ashes, mourning, yet worships God and would refuse to curse God and die, would refuse to curse God to his face as the devil even said would happen. In chapter 3, Job's lament is seen. So we looked at last week, Job's emotions frustrations and emotions and sorrow was just vented, vented out to God. Job, as a real human being, a real man, is demonstrating what was in his mind and in his heart as he tried to figure out and contemplate all that's happened in his life. And his emotions and feelings are just poured out. It's interesting because in Job chapter 3, where Job begins this, he opens his mouth and curses the day of his birth. We read in the previous verse in chapter 2 that his friends had come and they sat with Job on the ground seven days and seven nights and no one spoke a word because they saw how great Job's suffering was. So that brings us to chapter 4. Job has just experienced more loss probably than any of us could ever even imagine all at one time. Now, some of us are here and you would say, listen, I've experienced great loss in my life and I, I believe that. But the point with Job is that all of Job's children were taken from him. All of his, his possessions and servants in anguish and friends abandoning him, his wife 
calling him to curse God and die. And this happened all at one time in the life of Job, all at once. And his friends, after sitting with him for seven days and seven nights and not speaking a word, have just got done listening to Job share his frustration and his sorrow and his emotion and his anguish and the rawness of all of that. And now his friends are going to speak to Job and offer Job counsel. And what I would consider and what we've considered for our series this morning to highlight as bad counsel that they would offer to Job. Let's look at chapter 4, verses 1 through 7, and we'll begin with this man named Eliphaz. Eliphaz. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. Then Eliphaz, the Temanite, answered and said, If one ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? Yet who can keep from speaking? Behold, you have instructed many, and you have strengthened the weak hands. Your words have upheld him who was stumbling, and you have made firm the feeble knees. But now it has come to you, and you are impatient. It touches you, and you are dismayed. Is not your fear of God your confidence in the integrity of your ways your hope? Remember, who that was innocent ever perished, or where were the upright cut off? Eliphaz's initial counsel to Job, his questioning of Job, is that Job would recognize first and foremost that you are not innocent, Job. You are not innocent. Now, I find it interesting because as I mentioned to you, if you've never done a study in the book of Job and recognized all that was true of Job's life that set him apart in the mind of God, chapter 4 verses 1 through 6 give a great starting point look at Job's life and what was true of Job. Eliphaz admits that Job, verse 3, has instructed many He strengthened the weak hands. His words have upheld the one that was stumbling. He's made firm the feeble knees. He says that the fear of God, verse 6, was your confidence and the integrity of your ways, your hope. If you look at just those things that Eliphaz is going to recount about Job's life, that's a great starting point if we look at our own lives and say, okay, if I were to be set apart in God's mind as one who fears God and hates evil, as one that walks uprightly before God, what are some things we can begin to put in practice in our lives? Great things here. Instruction giving instruction to those who need it, strengthening the weak hands, upholding those that were stumbling, making firm the feeble knees, the weak, trusting in God, in the fear of God as our confidence, and walking with integrity in our ways. What a great list right there. And there's more of that if we look through the book of Job, studying what was true of Job's life. But Eliphaz uses all of that as a backdrop then to say to Job, Job, if that was all true of you and you were continuing to live in that way, none of this would be happening to you. Job, if you were innocent before God, verse 7, who was innocent that ever perished? Or where were the upright ever cut off? Eliphaz is saying to Job, You're guilty. You're not innocent. You've obviously done something to sin to cause God to bring all of the calamity that's coming into your life. Eliphaz will go on. Jump down to verse 17. He'll go on to say, Can mortal man be in the right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? Now listen, if we were reading this chapter in the Council of Eliphaz in a completely separate section of God's word without the backdrop of chapters 1 and 2, we would read Eliphaz's counsel here and be like, He's right! (laughs) This guy's on point! He got everything right here! He's right! 
Who is innocent before God? Who is living right before God? Who is called righteous and blameless by God? No one is called that by God. And yet we have the backdrop of chapter 1 and 2 where God, at this point in Job's life, would say to the devil himself, Job is blameless before me. He fears me and hates evil. He's righteous. There's no one like this man in all of the earth. Now, Eliphaz isn't privy to that information. Job was not privy to that information when all of this was taking place. And so Eliphaz is attacking Job here. You are not innocent. Can mortal man be in the right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? He says, you're not innocent and you are not right in God's sight. You are not right in God's sight. He goes on, even in his servants he puts no trust, his angels he charges with air. How much more those who dwell in houses of clay, whose foundations is in the dust, who are crushed like the moth. Between morning and evening they are beaten to pieces, they perish forever without anyone regarding it. Is not their tent cord plucked up within them? Do they not die and without wisdom? Job, you're not right in God's sight. Friend number one. You're not innocent. You're not right in God's sight. Eliphaz will keep talking in chapter 5. Look at what he says in chapter 5, verses 17 and 18. Behold, blessed is the one whom God reproves. Therefore, despise not the discipline of the Almighty. For he wounds, but he binds up. He shatters, but his hands heal. Now, whereas Eliphaz is correct, blessed is the one that the Lord corrects. And we're told that elsewhere as well. The one, one that the Lord loves, he corrects. He as a father chastens the child that he loves. But Eliphaz is now saying to Job, you're not innocent. You're not right in God's sight. You are being disciplined by God. That's his conclusion. Job pours out his heart in chapter 3. He doesn't know what's going on. He's in anguish. He's in sorrow. His, his emotions have gotten the best of him. And he's pouring out in his frustration, in anger, in sorrow, in emotion to God. And Eliphaz speaks up and says, I can't keep quiet any longer. Listen, let me bring you a dose of reality, Job. Bad things don't happen to those that are honoring God. So you're not innocent. And beyond that, bad things don't happen to those that are living rightly before God. So you're not right in God's sight. You're disobeying him clearly. And one more thing, Job, God's disciplining you, so just welcome it and accept it, because you need it. That's friend number one's counsel for Job. Now, there are a lot of problems with that. There are a lot of issues with that. And we're going to talk a little bit as we go down, after we look at the three friends' reactions to Job and Job's reaction to them, about some truths to consider when it comes to counsel. But I want to begin by having this understanding. Eliphaz had come to the same conclusion that many people even have the same conclusions today about anything that happens that is bad or negative or hardships in the life of the believer in Jesus Christ. If something bad is happening in your life, you clearly aren't innocent, you're clearly disobeying God, and God is clearly correcting you because you're not living rightly. So get it right and everything will be okay. Friends, that's not, that's not Bible. <laughs> it is not 
the Bible that teaches if you just honor God, everything will be golden for you. That's not what the scriptures teach. Now, the Bible does teach that when we are disobedient and living in sin as God's children, God's hand of correction will come into our lives. It does teach that. The Bible does teach that oftentimes when hardships or troubles come, it is the disciplining hand of God because of disobedience. But the problem is that is not all the time the case. And some of you know that firsthand, that you've experienced hardship and trouble in your life, and you know it's not because of living ungodly or without righteousness before God, because you are honoring God, and you are living rightly before God, and you are confessing sin, and you are repenting of sin, and you are desirous to follow God, and yet the troubles still come. And Job serves as a prime example for us that someone can be living rightly before God, And yet troubles can come into our lives and the only explanation and reason for the trouble that is found in our lives is because God is going to use that in an ultimate way for his glory and our good. But Eliphaz doesn't see that. His counsel to Job is, you're not innocent, you're not right, you're being disciplined by God. Great encouragement from his friend when Job was really down and out. Next, let's look at Bildad. Bildad, chapter 8. In chapter 8, Bildad begins his counsel to Job. Look at verses 1 through 4. Then Bildad the Shuhite answered and said, How long will you say these things, and the words of your mouth be a great wind? Great starting counsel right there for a guy that's really down and out. How long will you say these things, and the words of your mouth be a great wind? Does God pervert justice, or does the Almighty pervert the right? And then look at how deeply he cuts here. If your children have sinned against him, and he has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. If you will seek God and plead with the Almighty for mercy, if you are pure and upright, surely then he will rouse himself for you and restore your rightful habitation. Listen to what Bildad says to Job. First of all, he says, your kids have sinned. Job's children had been taken from him. Gone. And friend number two says, verse four, if your children have sinned against him, he's delivered them into the hand of their transgressions. How about that counsel? Bildad, your kids sinned, Job. Oh, by the way, you've sinned, Job. After talking about his children's sin, he says, if you'll seek God and plead with him for mercy, if you are pure and upright, then he'll rouse himself for you and restore your rightful habitation. Though your beginning was small, your latter days will be very great. Your kids sinned, you've sinned. And then he goes on in chapter 8, verses 20 to 22. Behold, God will not reject a blameless man, nor take the hand of evildoers. He will yet fill your mouth with laughter and your lips with shouting. Those who hate you will be clothed with shame. The tent of the wicked will be no more. Here's his last part of his God's correcting you. Your kids have sinned, so God has taken them. You've sinned, he's taken them from you in your health and all good things from you. God is correcting you. But Job, if you will just, if you will just turn and repent of all of the wrong that you've committed before God, everything will go back to being fantastic for you. So get going. 
Come on, man. Your words are like wind. You clearly have disobeyed God. You're clearly not living rightly before God. Your kids have clearly sinned. You've sinned. God's correcting you. Turn it all around, fella, and everything will be better for you. Maybe you've heard that before. Maybe you've listened to that before. And again, I don't want to belittle the correcting hand of God because the Bible is very clear. Again, when we are living disobediently before God and we are not walking with him as his children, God's hand of correcting will come. And sometimes that hand of correction is painful. And if you're experiencing hardship today and pain and loss and you're experiencing trials in your life today, then maybe there needs to be a starting point in asking before God, God, am I living obediently before you? Because the correcting hand of God is very real. But that is not always the case when hardship comes. We know that's not the case in Job's life. And yet, friend number two, Bildad, giving his counsel to Job, your kids have sinned, they're all dead now. You've sinned, you're going to die. God's correcting you, so turn it around. And then everything will be great. Wise counsel, Number three, Zophar. Look at chapter 11, verses 1 through 4. Then Zophar, the Naamathite, answered and said, Should a multitude of words go unanswered and a man full of talk be judged right? Again, great opening line. I'm going to encourage my friend here. Should your babble silence men, and when you mock, shall no one shame you? For you say, My doctrine is pure, and I am clean in God's eyes. But oh, that God would speak and open his lips to you. Let's start off by Zophar telling Job, Job, you are a big, fat liar. That's, that's his counsel initially. Job, you're a liar. <laughs> you say, my doctrine is pure and I am clean in God's eyes. He calls Job's words that which is foolish, that which is mocking. He doesn't believe him. You're a liar. I listen to what you're saying, Job. You're saying that you live rightly before God. You're saying that you've done nothing wrong. You're saying that you don't understand what's going on, but you know. Be honest. Quit lying. You're a liar. But oh, that God would speak and open his lips to you, that he would tell you the secrets of wisdom, for he is manifold in understanding. Know then that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. You know what, what he's saying here, Zophar is saying, you deserve what has come on you, and actually, you deserve even worse, Job, because you're an awful human being, clearly. That's what he's telling Job. He says, listen, know that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. Now again, Job was not without sin. Job was not a sinless, perfect man. When God describes Job as blameless and upright in his sight that fears God, hates evil, there's no one like him in all the earth, Job, in the eyes of God, was as right as you could be in God's sight at this point in Job's life. He still needed a savior. He still needed Jesus, just like every one of us. It remained true of Job, just as it remains true of every person sitting here today, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and that the wages of sin is death. 
That remained true for Job, and it remains true for you and I, apart from Christ. That's why Job's confession that he knows his Redeemer lives in chapter 19 is so valuable. Because Job recognized his need for a Redeemer. And he believed in a Redeemer that was coming. But Zophar is telling Job, you're a liar, you deserve what has come on you. And then verses 13 to 18, he echoes what the other guys were saying in verses 13 to 18. We don't have time to read it. But in 13 to 18, he says this, if you would just repent, Job, everything will be made right again. If you would just repent, everything will be made right. So Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, all very similar counsel to Job. And all of them were absolutely wrong as it relates to their understanding and assumptions concerning Job at this point in their lives. Now, here's what's interesting. A lot of what these three men counseled to Job was very wise if Job was someone that was sinning clearly unrepentant sin before God. See, all of their counsel if it was given to an individual that was blatantly sinning against God and disregarding God, would have been very wise. Job, you've sinned. You need to repent. You need to ask God for forgiveness. You need to start honoring him and living rightly before him. And God will bring restoration to you. God will give you the joy and peace that he, only he can give. That's true counsel when someone is disobeying their heavenly father. I would tell you today, if you're blatantly disobeying God and living unrepentant sin before God, a lifestyle of sin before God, expect no good thing from God. Don't expect the peace of God and the joy that God gives. If you're living in disobedience to God. But this counsel that they were giving, they were giving to a man who in God's sight was living rightly. So let's look at Job's response. Number one, chapter 16, after all this counsel is given, Job responds to them. Look at chapter 16, verses 1 through 5. Then Job answered and said, I've heard many such things. Miserable comforters are you all, he says. Job's initial response to their counsel is, you guys are awful comforters. You guys are awful comforters. You're supposed to be my friends. You're supposed to be those that I can count on. Folks, can I just say as a side note, friends are going to let us down sometimes. And it's not an excuse when we let people down, but we are human. And so there will be times that we are going to let each other down. But again, the one who remains faithful from start to finish throughout the entirety of the book of Job is God. Entirely faithful. But he says to his friends, you guys are awful comforters. Awful. Chapter 16, 1 to 5 and 17, 1 and 2. You can read Job's responses there to them. He says in verse 1 of chapter 17, my spirit is broken, my days are extinct, the graveyard is ready for me. Surely there are mockers about me, and my eye dwells on their provocation. He says, listen, you guys are awful comforters. You guys are just completely mocking me in my sorrow. You're of no help to me. Chapter 19, verses 1 through 3, Job answers again and says to them, How long will you torment me and break me in pieces with words? These ten times you have cast reproach upon me. Are you not ashamed to wrong me? Job says, you should be ashamed of the hurt you're bringing on me. You're just layering it. You're stacking up shame upon shame upon shame upon shame on me. In my time of need, in my time of distress, in my time of anguish, in my time of sorrow, 
you're an awful comforter, and you're just trying to stack it up on me. I immediately thought about, like, when my kids are in trouble. Uh, this just happened the other day. One of the girls was in trouble about something, and Shoshana and I are in her bedroom, and we're talking to her, and the other girls could tell by our tone that this one was in trouble. And it's so funny, because this happens all the time, is we'll be in the room talking to them, and all of a sudden, the other heads appear. Like, they want to come in and take part of it. So they come in, and they just kind of stand, and they want to listen to it. And then occasionally, one of them will be like, yeah! And they'll, like, they'll give their comment. And I look at them, and I'll say, get out of here. Get out of the room. Because what they're trying to do is, like, add insult to the injury. So when one's in trouble, they love it. And so they all, like, want to gather around and listen why they're in trouble. And then they want to give their two cents on it. Okay, it's, it's great to watch. Like, I try not to laugh when it happens because it's funny. But at the same time, I'm like, you're not the parent. Get out of here. Right? And then they really get bothered when I look at them and go, we're talking to you next. And then they instantly, like, eyes get big, and they go, but I read away, I thought about this. I thought, Job's saying, listen, you guys are awful, you guys are awful counselors, you guys are awful comforters, and you're just piling on the shame in my time of hurt and need right now. I wonder, how often are we guilty of that? How often are we guilty of that? If you've been on the receiving end of that, you know that's no good. But how many of us are on the giving end of that? Job will go on to tell them in chapter 19, verses 21 and 22, you should have shown mercy to me. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me, O my friends, for the hand of God has touched me. Why do you like God pursue me? Why are you not satisfied with my flesh? Job's saying, isn't this enough for you? You're seeing my utter destruction right in front of your eyes, and yet you give me no mercy, you give me no comfort. You should have shown mercy to me. But then Job, I believe, puts a cap on all of this that I feel in the midst of all that's going on is incredible that Job would say this. This is in chapter 19, 23. This is the context to Job's statement, 23 to 27. Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead, they were engraved in the rock forever. Job having no idea that 3,000 years later we'd be reading his words. I know, verse 25, that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. If you say, how, will we, how, will, how we will pursue him, and the root of the matter is found in him, be afraid of the sword, for wrath brings the punishment of the sword, that you may know there is a judgment. Job capstones all of his arguments and all of his responses to his friends by saying this, my faith is not found in you. My faith is not found in you. You see this context of Job making the statement he makes of his confidence and faith that's found in his Redeemer, who he knows lives. Is after all of the bad counsel he's received, after the attack of his three friends, after everyone's been just destroying him about things that he didn't even do. After Job laments and Job shares, you've mocked me, you've not shown me mercy, you've kicked me while I'm down, you're a miserable comforter, you guys should be ashamed of yourself. After all that is said and done, Job reminds them, my faith's not in you guys. So in spite of all of you said and all of you've done and all of the discouragement you brought my way, I know that my Redeemer lives. That's where my faith is found. So let me give us some truths to consider today when it comes to bad counsel. Number one, even if done with the greatest of intentions, 
bad counsel is still bad counsel. Okay? I think it's important for us to get. Even if done with the greatest of intentions, bad counsel is still bad counsel. You know, you don't have to look too far to see believers in Christ giving bad counsel to other believers in Christ when they begin to elevate what their desires are above what God has said. If you have Christian friends, believers, who are encouraging you to continue living in sin because they want to justify and say it's okay, that's bad counsel. If anyone is causing or telling us to do something contrary to what God's word clearly says, that's bad counsel. And even if it is done with the greatest of intentions, bad counsel is still bad counsel and it should be ignored. Sometimes we're on the receiving end of that and sometimes we might be on the giving end of that. Number two, counsel given based upon assumptions is not wise counsel at all. Counsel that is given based upon assumptions is not wise counsel at all. Uh, We maybe have all experienced that as well or been the ones that are giving that as well. Sometimes we can jump to conclusions or assume certain things are true and we can give counsel or instruction based upon assumptions and those assumptions are inaccurate. And so counsel given based upon assumptions is not wise counsel at all. Number three, our faith, confidence, and decision making must not have man's counsel as a foundation but rather God's word as our foundation. Our faith, confidence, and decision-making must not have man's counsel as a foundation, but rather God's word as the foundation for our decisions. I can't tell you how many times, tragically, I've heard people who have checked out of church. They say, I don't go to church anymore. Why? And it's because of the actions of another Christian that they refuse to be a part of the body of Christ. I'm done with church. Why? Because of the response or actions of a believer. When someone says that, it becomes abundantly clear that what has been their foundation or their source of faith or their source of decision-making has been man and not God. Because God does not change. The reason we come together to worship, to fellowship, to be taught God's word, to honor God, is not because we like a certain individual or individuals. It's because we serve a holy, true, living God who does not change. And he's deserving of glory. And so our confidence and faith must not be shaken because of the counsel of man. So let me give you some actions to take, some actions for each one of us to take. Number one, seek the glory of God in any counsel we may give. Seek the glory of God in any counsel that we may give. If we truly are seeking the glory of God in any counsel that we give, we will never give counsel that will go contrary to what God's word says. Let me say that again. If we're giving counsel to the glory of God, seeking to give God the glory in any counsel that we give, we will never give counsel that goes contrary to what God's word says. Because to do so would not be to bring God glory. So we must be faithfully seeking the glory of God in any counsel we may give. Number two, seek to find out truth before offering opinions. This one's hard, isn't it? Seek to find out truth before offering opinions. Because counsel given based upon assumptions is not wise counsel at all. So seek truth. Be slow to speak, right? And quick to listen. Be slow to speak and to offer counsel. And be quick to find out truth first. 
So seek out truth before offering opinions. And number three, always defer to God's word as the authority, not to ourselves or to anyone else. Always defer to God's word as the authority, not to ourselves or to anyone else. When we're seeking, when we're giving counsel, always defer to God's word. There's two different types of counsel that we can offer. We can offer counsel that is wise into the glory of God, or we can offer counsel that is wise into the glory of self. Might we be those? Might we be those that offer wise counsel to the glory of God? And might we be those that receive wise counsel to the glory of God and then act on it? Job would receive some bad counsel here. But his faith was not in his friends. His faith was in his Redeemer, whom he knew with all of his heart lived and whom he knew he would see with his own eyes. Might Christ, too, be the foundation of our faith? And might that be unbreakable? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the wise counsel that we receive from your word. God, I pray that you would help us to be both those that give wise counsel for your glory and to be those that receive wise counsel for your glory as well. Might we act on that. Might our faith in Christ be the foundation as we live in this life for your glory and your honor. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.